Welcome to the Alberta Clean Tech Podcast, where we discuss and explore clean technology with industry leaders. Brought to you by the Alberta Clean Technology Industry Alliance. Hi, Jason here. Let me set the stage. We recorded this interview with Sebastian Jean-Grand, CEO of Canada's leading Hyperloop venture, Transpod, on March 11th during the inaugural Alberta Clean Tech Investment Summit, which we hosted with our partners Foresight Canada, the Energy Futures Lab, and Startup TNT. Over 200 participants enjoyed a series of 10 venture pitches. And then, while the investors stepped out to deliberate, I hosted this fireside chat with Sebastian, who is developing what might be, in my view, the prototypical swing-for-the-fence clean tech play. Lots of IP, a global race for a multi-billion dollar market, very capital intensive, and of course, very inspiring for everybody involved. The investors came back after our chat and made a series of announcements, including making over $450,000 in commitments of private investment into four of the clean tech ventures that were participating. And then we all drank some fine Albertan craft beer and celebrated. Transpod is Canada's leading Hyperloop startup and is among a small group competing for what has been estimated to be a $6 billion per year market by mid-decade and which would grow by thousands of times if it can be made commercial and competitive with incumbent solutions. Disruptive um, from an energy use perspective relative to things like short-haul flights, passenger trains, and and high-speed freight. So join me and Sebastian as we discuss this futuristic transportation system, why he started his own company. I'll give you a hint. He says it's to have fun in life. And his advice on how to build a world-class hardware-based clean tech venture in Canada. Oh, and find out whether he met Elon Musk. Okay, with that, take it away. I'm the uh, co-founder and CEO of Transport. So Transport is the uh, Canadian company, uh, as you mentioned, Jason, developing what we know today under the concept name of Hyperloop or Tube Transportation. We've been starting that company with my co-founder, Ryan uh, since 2015, uh, signed a, a memorandum of understanding with the government of Alberta last August. And uh, a bit, a few words about my background. I used to work for big OEM such as Bombardier, Airbus, uh, Saffron, which is another big aerospace company. And I would say uh, I'm not a good employee. Uh, after a few years uh, at Airbus, and even uh, I kind of tried several times. Uh, after I joined Bombardier and then Safran and again Bombardier Transportation. And at the end, I said, okay, they all work the same. So you better start your, your own company if you want to have uh, fun in life. And, uh, and so far, yeah, it's been five years and it's, it's going pretty, uh, pretty well. And uh, we have big plans for, for Alberta for sure. So just a few words about the company. So we're a Canadian company developing that concept. I said that. And our vision was really kind of to look at how can we have a better connected world with the mission to develop a new transportation system, uh, which is, of course, uh, sustainable. And I would say more than, than the vision or the mission, really, the, 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 the motivation was to, uh, to work on something, to have fun on a day-to-day, to inspire people and to say, okay, uh, there is no limit to, uh, to develop uh, uh, the future uh, of transportation and how the world could look like, or pretty much to develop the, 
transportation system of the 21st uh, uh, century. So founded in Canada, uh, we're based in Toronto, operations so in uh, Italy and France as well. And uh, more likely by end of this year, we should be uh, in Alberta as well. Developing that new transportation system, so tube transportation system, it's not something new. Uh, it's been around for many years. Initial concept have been, uh, I would say, described in the early uh, 1900s. And uh, the, the trick is really to uh, have, I would say, vehicles the size of a train coach or a bus uh, traveling in a tube where you have removed uh, most of the air. And this is um, the, the basic of that concept is that by doing that, uh, you allow each vehicle to uh, avoid aerodynamic friction. And, and then thanks to electromagnetic engines, uh, you can achieve speeds which are similar to, uh, to an aircraft. So we're talking about uh, 1,200 kilometers an hour. In terms of business development, we've been around. So in Canada, uh, we've done some work in uh, Thailand. And uh, of course, we have some uh, work in uh, Europe and some corridors also we're looking uh, to develop in, in France, uh, some in the US, some in Middle East. And uh, there is also two other corridors in Australia uh, we aim to develop in the next few years. So a few words about uh, transport and what kind of what are the key differentiators between us and, and the competition. So just to make it clear, there is no technology behind Hyperloop. It's a concept. It's a tube transportation concept. And uh, Musk popularized that concept in 2013, but didn't develop any technology or IP uh, whatsoever. However, he really promoted the system and allow uh, several companies, including Transport, to develop that. And there is two ways of developing that, uh, or two strategies. One strategy is really to try to reuse existing technologies such as uh, maglev. Uh, there is only one commercial line today using maglev. It's in China. Uh, for those who had the chance to uh, travel to uh, Shanghai and took the train to connect uh, the airport to uh, almost the city center, it's a train um, traveling up to 400 kilometers an hour doing um, to do 30 kilometers in 10 minutes. But the challenge with that technology, it's, it's really expensive. Uh, in Japan, they're trying to develop that. Uh, they could that system could be profitable in Japan because of the really high ridership they have. So we kind of moved away from that uh, approach and really with Ryan to start from scratch and to develop our key IP. It's been patented, it's public for those who are kind of a, a tech savvy. Uh, you can look at the IP and analyze it. It's, it's really interesting. Uh, Ryan is the brain uh, behind it. And uh, that IP allows us to concentrate all the technology on the vehicle uh, to keep the infrastructure cost as low as possible, to keep an infrastructure as basic is pretty much a steel tube on, uh, on, on concrete pillars. We've tested the IP uh, in Toronto at our office. We, we had some, we've developed some test benches over the last few years, and we have a technology demonstrator uh, currently in construction and we plan to unveil that in the next few months uh, to actually explain how uh, some key subsystems such as the power transmission, the levitation, and the propulsion uh, works. There's, of course, some R&D development done with Canadian and European uh, universities. 
we got some funding in 2016 from uh, a strategic investors and an investor and um, and of course some uh, funding from the uh, Canadian and uh, European Union here are pictures so people can really visualize how it works uh, an infrastructure with steel tubes a vehicle traveling uh, uh, in the tube and really the uh, the also a key element to understand is that to to have a chance to uh, for those infrastructure to be profitable down the road you need to maximize the utilization of the infrastructure you you uh, you need to move away uh, from only looking at uh, maximizing the capacity of the vehicle but really maximizing this utilization of the infrastructure meaning that from 5, 5 a.m in the morning until midnight uh, you need to have vehicle traveling uh, every two minutes uh, in order to generate uh, enough uh, revenue. Uh, there is, of course, some solar panels. So here in Alberta, between Calgary and Edmonton, uh, we're talking about 300 kilometers of solar panels. So that infrastructure could have some uh, green energy for the province. We're talking about two types of uh, applications, one for passengers for short connection, like airport connection, similar to the one uh, done in Shanghai I just described before, and of course, uh, intercity transit. So tomorrow, the goal is really to have a, a full network. We'll start with uh, initial corridors, such as the one connecting Calgary and Edmonton, and then step-by-step uh, step, uh, develop uh, a full network. And this is the uh, the goal of the uh, European Union as well. And for cargo, uh, same type of application could be short distance or long distance. However, for cargo, we're not talking about um, uh, natural resources. It's really uh, cargo sensitive to time. So either e-commerce or food. Uh, passenger experience, it's, it's a key point. Uh, some people say, okay, why always go faster? Why speed and is the main kind of uh, um, aspect of the project. And I would say that those people are right. Uh, it's not the, it's, it's an important aspect, but not the only one. The other aspect is really to remove all the stress from uh, conventional, I would say travel, uh, the way we know it today, in a way that it's really to be able to provide the frequency of the subway with the speed of the aircraft, meaning that not to bother anymore about, okay, I'm stuck in traffic. I won't be able to make it on time. I will have to rebook my ticket, uh, pay additional fees to change it, or at least, or worse, to have to buy another flight ticket. Now is really to be able to, okay, I'll go to the station, and no matter what the time I'm arriving at the station, I know that one vehicle will uh, allow me to travel to my uh, final destination. So that's, that's really key element for us. We're looking as well at redefining the uh, customer experience. Uh, we understand that some people may have some concerns about the uh, claustrophobic aspect. Uh, so really paying attention either like if you look at the uh, picture on the right, uh, having kind of a, a shared environment or an individual, I would say, environment for uh, the end user. So really looking at, okay, how do we want to travel uh, tomorrow? And I uh, got some people in the team quite pretty good at that. And uh, yeah, we have uh, interesting solutions uh, down the road. Talking about the team, uh, pretty proud. Uh, we're covering all the aspects of the development. And um, I have to say that we have a pretty 
a diverse team and I'm, I'm proud of that. And I'm not saying that because it's uh, uh, nice to say it uh, or it's, it's not because it's the flavor of the day. I can confirm that uh, diversity drives performance. We have people from all around the world, uh, even from Russia, China, Iran, uh, Bjorn here for the engineering aspect uh, works from Sweden. And, uh, and having those different inputs uh, really drives performance and help us to, uh, to succeed uh, down the road. Some partners and investors, uh, the European Union, uh, some region, Mars as well, we're working closely with them uh, here in, uh, in Toronto. And Twitty, which is a, a company from, from Calgary, it's an engineering firm for uh, construction. SAD, uh, it's a big one as well in France. EDF, it's the electrical company from France too. Some labs and so on. And yeah, pretty prou proud. Have, uh, I think the last uh, person presenting uh, their company were mentioning also the Solar Impulse Foundations who were part of that too as well. So Alberta, um, when we started to um, uh, develop or to look at uh, major corridors in Canada, there is of course the main one, which is the Toronto Montreal, but we had a, a recommendation uh, right from the beginning from uh, uh, Transport Canada telling us that, you know what, Toronto Montreal is interesting, but uh, uh, you have to deal with two provinces. There is many stakeholders such as VRL, Air Canada. So it's a complicated corridor. And they told us, yeah, please uh, start to work with Calgary Edmonton. Uh, it's easier. You have a good ridership, uh, significant. Uh, it's a straight. Uh, the geography is pretty nice. It's also shorter than Toronto Montreal. We're talking about 300 kilometers uh, compared to 700. So kind of the ideal candidate. We started with the NDP government uh, back in 2017, and then uh, started to engage with Minister MacIver, uh, I would say a year ago, and then we signed that uh, MOU uh, last August to lay down uh, the development of this corridor over the next uh, uh, 10 years. And so short term, uh, we have a, a feasibility study currently ongoing uh, we presented initial results to the government before Christmas, and uh, the full report will be due uh, for end of April. We actually have a touch point with Alberta Transportation uh, next Monday on that, and so, so far we're on track. Uh, in parallel, uh, we're negotiating with financial institutions the budget to develop the full line. And it's kind of almost too good to be true, but uh, we are on track to be able to announce the budget to, uh, to build this major infrastructure project uh, this year. I hope I would be able to announce that uh, this summer, uh, but definitely uh, this year it's, it's, it's in good shape. And so the medium uh, term, it's to build the first segment. Uh, the first segment would be used as a test track and then as an airport connection um, just for everybody on the line, uh, we have a, uh, a slight preference for the Edmonton airport connection, uh, mainly because we have, uh, we have those 20 kilometers between the airport and the city, and also the density between the airport of Edmonton and the city is actually uh, lower than, um, than in Calgary. Uh, so anyway, I don't want to disappoint people in Calgary, but yeah, Edmonton has a bit of a head start on our side. And then you long could term, see, you could see yeah. my face turning pale, couldn't you, Sebastian? No, not <laughs> Edmonton. You know what? I had a feedback some uh, from um, somebody from Calgary asking me if we can do two test tracks. 
So uh, one in Edmonton, one in Calgary, so everybody is happy. So, uh, but uh, I mean, if we have the cash, why not? Uh, we could maybe probably speed up all the testing. And at the end of the day, we will need those two airport connections anyway. So we never know. That could, that could be the case in the, in the next few months. We'll have to take that decision. And then, of course, long term, uh, the full corridor. And we aim to start. The, we'll have the green light to initiate the construction of that full line uh, around um, after the certification. And we aim for certification for uh, uh, cargo. Yeah cargo around 2026 and uh, certification for passengers around 2027. So the timeline is securing the budget uh, this year uh, for the full project uh, because those financial institutions were in discussion with are not interested only by the, the, the airport connection, but really by the full corridor. Uh, if everything goes well, so we announced that this year 2022 will be used to obtain all the construction permit, uh, environmental authorization, uh, do all the public consultation related to such uh, a project, start the construction in 2023, two years construction, so until 2025, so we can start uh, all the testing required to obtain the certification, and then certification 2026, 2027, and then uh, continue the construction of uh, the line. Um, best case scenario, entry into service around 2031. If we want to be uh, realistic, because I'm, I'm, I'm expecting some roadblocks along the way, but we can be confident and expect uh, a, a line to be operational between 2030 and 2035. So that's uh, yeah what I wanted to uh, share with you. Uh, and uh, now uh, really happy to um, to answer all the questions uh, you you might have and uh, and know that you have interesting ones. Well, uh, you know, there's been a few really good questions coming in from the chat. So let me let me start with a couple of those. I mean, one was around the uh, build cost per kilometer. What, yeah. what does that look like, and how competitive is it with uh, traditional TGV or uh, other high speed rail? Yeah. So. It's, it's always interesting. Um, so there's two aspects of, uh, of the economics to look at. There's of course the, uh, the cost per kilometer. It's, in, it's, in, it's important, it's affecting uh, the business case of the line, but there's also uh, uh, the economics and, and literally how the business case uh, work. So first the infrastructure cost per kilometer. Yeah, we're talking about the same amount uh, same order of magnitude as a nice speed rail line we have uh, in uh, Europe, for example. But if uh, for those who are familiar with those projects in Europe, 80% of those infrastructure projects are not profitable. They're losing money like uh, crazy. Fact, crazy, depending on the ridership, but they're losing money. And so we, when we started that with Ryan, we said, okay, we can't afford as a private company to go uh, to, to fall under the same, uh, uh, I would say, pitfall. And um, this is where optimizing the, the usage of the infrastructure is key. And uh, we're gonna mix passenger vehicle and freight uh, vehicle. As of today, we signed uh, an agreement, a collaboration agreement with DHL, for example, to better understand the, the uh, flow of goods uh, between the two cities. We're also working with a local company in Alberta called Wallace and, and Kerry. I don't know if you, familiar with them, they are a major player in logistics. 
really to uh, understand again that flow of goods between those two cities and having the connection between those two airports. So pretty much having uh, the model we are right now, it's to use the infrastructure um, mainly for passengers during peak hours, morning, afternoon, and then uh, filling the gaps with freight uh, during the day and later in the evening and really maximizing the capacity, the usage of the line. Awesome. And uh, a question around, uh, so I, I think you were saying essentially that if you look at OPEX and CAPEX together, yeah. that it starts to become a much better proposition and that yeah. you need the public funding. But uh, beyond that, um, what's the competitive landscape like? Who's who's winning the race to um, commercialize? And does that depend by country? Uh, so there is, we have now, um, I don't see them actually as competitors, but more as uh, uh, players developing a new ecosystem. And uh, what I mean by uh, competitors or players, uh, there is now eight companies, including transport. So seven companies plus the uh, South Korean uh, government. Uh, we have uh, four players in Europe, one in Spain, one in Netherlands, one in Poland, one in Switzerland. Uh, I have, of course, two main players in the U.S. Uh, so the main one uh, is known as, uh, as a Virgin Hyperloop. And then we have also Hyperloop Transportation Technologies, Transport, and then the uh, South Korean uh, government. I would say from a commercial standpoint, um, as far as I know, Transport is the only company being able to sign such an agreement with the government. So we, we have a head start on that. On the technology side, um i yeah i still believe and that's been confirmed with by third parties as well that uh transport as, as a head start as well on the ip because we've been able to yeah develop and demonstrate how the power transmission the levitation and the uh the proportion works on that vehicle and we'll showcase that on a demonstrator in the next uh, few weeks or at least uh, before the, we aim for May, so before uh, this summer, to actually go deep dive and explain how the technology works. I would say Virgin has a head start in terms of uh, raising capital. They've been raising crazy amount of money, uh, but they, they, they're still, I would say, struggling to really convince on how their system works. They've done a test with passengers, but when you talk with experts, they still ask the question, okay, we're not convinced by the levitation system, the proportion and so on. And uh, we aim, I'd say as an ecosystem, we, have, uh, we still have some work to actually convince and answer those criticism, which are uh, valid. Yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll come back to that, that, that point around capital, but uh, you know, there's been a few questions around public safety and First Nations engagement, as well as your time to of certification from Transportation Canada and how that compares with other, other parts of the world. So uh, can you speak to to what extent have you started engaging with stakeholders here in Alberta uh, and, and at what point you start to talk about, you know, the, the kind of nuts and bolts of right of way and, and all the rest of it with some of the, the host communities? Yeah, so uh, I'll start with the regulation. Uh, we're working with the uh, uh, European Transportation Commission since 2018 now. All the players I just uh, shared with you before 
we're meeting together with the EU every three months. The last meeting was actually last week uh, to develop the uh, regulatory framework. Uh, I've tried to engage Transport Canada on that and they've been kind of slow to start, but I'm glad they were able to participate to an information session with the EU end of January. So step-by-step step, uh, they are uh, coming on board. The DOT in the US, the Department of Transportation, is developing that as well with, uh, uh, with Virgin. And we have some communication as well with Virgin. We may work with them. Uh, for those who are following this, the, the, the ecosystem, you're probably aware that Virgin is planning to develop a certification center in West Virginia uh, in the next few years. So in order to reduce the cost, uh, we may be able to find some synergies on some kind of similar testing. And uh, Alberta Transportation is, of course, in the loop uh, regarding all those discussions. And, uh, and the, 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 we have five years today, we've been clear with the EU, we need a safety framework uh, by 2025. And so far, it, the, the wheel is there and uh, uh, it's, we're on track to have that framework. And so to, to be able to certify the system around 2026, 2027. When it comes to right of way here, um, we, our strategy is to have a, same, a similar approach than uh, what's been done in Alberta when it comes to pipeline uh, construction. Uh, so we'll have to acquire or to sign agreement with landowners uh, regarding that corridor. We started to uh, discuss with First Nations, uh, First Nations slowly but surely. We, we are in the process to be in touch with uh, uh, people from Treaty uh, 6 and then Treaty 7, who are the two main treaties uh, engaged. And again, it's almost too good to be true. So far, they are interested to be part of the project and we need to find the right, I would say, win-win situation for everyone uh, to be part of this, uh, of this project for the province. Awesome. And if you can, can you, can you speak at all to, I mean, one of the, you know, we're, we've got a lot of entrepreneurs here who've been working with investors for the last three months, really, uh, through a process of, of securing that first seed investment. Um, how do you raise capital for something that's so capital intensive and so kind of out there? So it's a nightmare. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a challenge. I mean, three months is nothing. So uh, guys, uh, be or guys, ladies, be prepared because uh, for us, it's been, it's been five years and, uh, and we keep doing that. Um, and, and I didn't have any entrepreneur, entrepreneurial experience before I started that and kind of we're learning along the way. And what, uh, what do we've learned? So we have, we, uh, we have all the drawback of uh, we capital intensive, early stage, no revenue. So all the, everything which uh, kind of uh, makes investors to walk away from uh, what we do. And so, <clears throat> uh, for a project like us, uh, I can say now that we're not a good fit for venture capital uh, players. We're too long-term, too capital intensive. It's not a project for, uh, for them. And so the two type of investor interested in what we do are either family offices or um, institutional. But institutional, the challenge is that they're used to long-term uh, project, but they're not used to early stage project. So it, it's the goal is to be able to find 
the right player to invest in what we do. And some of them did the due diligence in our project and they said, okay, uh, great tech, uh, the team's okay, you seem not to be too dumb. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the strategy makes sense, good engineering uh, strategy and so on, but we don't know yet if there is a market. And if you may have the best technology of the world, if there's no market, I mean, you're dead. And so they've been, they've asked me, okay, just secure an agreement with the government. And if you do that, then we'll come back to the table. And I have to say that those who told me that a few years ago, after, soon, right after we signed that MOU with the government, I came back to them. I said, okay, now we have some market traction. Are you still on board? And yes, they are. And it's actually probably easier to raise billions than millions. It's kind of crazy. And there is also another aspect uh, which is uh, helping us is COVID. Uh, COVID and, um, is uh, pushing the financial sector to look at companies which are creating value rather than generating uh, short-term, I would say, uh, revenue. And uh, there is something also, if there is any clean tech companies which are looking at uh, a huge amount of capital, you probably heard about what we call now SPAC. So uh, yeah, and uh, we've been approached by an investment bank uh, to go through that. Uh, Virgin Galactic was one of the main one which went through that process uh, 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 maybe last year or two years ago. And anyway, I don't know, Jason, That's, if you want to talk No, about I was that. just going to say, yeah. can you define, can you help our, our audience understand what, understand what a SPAC is? Yeah, so a SPAC is a kind of a, a way to go public. So uh, if we want to go, so it's to go, uh, it's to go through an IPO and uh, SPAC means special purpose acquisition company. So you go public through uh, uh, the process to be acquired by a group of people who actually are looking at a company uh, such as uh, uh, Transpod who are creating value and needs to raise a significant amount of capital. So rather than, so, the drawback, of course, being public is expensive and it's painful, uh, but then to counterbalance those uh, uh, disadvantages, you may avoid having to go to go through multiple rounds. So you pretty much go through from series A to F uh, right from, yeah, straight away, uh, which is kind of an option we're looking at uh, for this year. So we'll see if we can, if we can do that, yeah. Very exciting. A couple more questions. We certainly have time for them. So um, would the system go underground in dense urban areas? Yes. And we may probably work with Musk with his boring company. <laughs> we'll see. Well, and of course, the, the most important question that everyone's, everyone wants to know is, have you met Elon Musk? I saw him once. I don't, I don't know the guy uh, personally. I appreciate what he does and uh, the track record and the vision and so on. Do I uh, appreciate the way he's doing it or the, uh, uh, the ego and so on? That's another, uh, it's another, uh, I would say, uh, uh, debate, I would say. But without him, um, we won't be there. I call him sometime our marketing director. He's been doing a huge amount of work to, uh, uh, to bring credibility to the system. And since he's been successful with Tesla and SpaceX, uh, people are watching closely uh, what every companies are doing. 
Having said that, yeah, some companies uh, lost, uh, some VCs actually lost uh, some money investing into uh, some of the Hyperloop companies. And so there's a bit of kind of, okay, how does it look? Is it a, is it a scam? Is it real? Uh, I think same as for what people do part of the, uh, the SPAC is really to understand the risk, understand the technology, understand the IP. Um, this, is, this is key to make a wise investment in those companies today. Well, let's come back to IP because there was a question around that. So much of this is public domain. How do you, how do you create something that has a moat in this space? As a moat, what do you mean? Protection. How do you protect? How do you protect what's uniquely yours in this space? I would say uh, we believe in the system right now. Hopefully, we are right in a way that we um, we file the IP uh, for to lock some key system, such as the power transmission. Uh, this is a, a key element because if you're not capable to feed each vehicle on a continuous basis with the uh, uh, the right amount of energy for each vehicle, it won't work. And maglev, if you use maglev, it's too expensive. So you need to kind of that. And so we filed the IP. Uh, it's been protected in the US, in Canada, and in Europe. So we kind of chose key countries. Uh, we didn't do it in Middle East, for example, because the, the, um, the IP protection is not good. We didn't do it in China, because even if somebody is copying you, you, your IP, uh, you're going to lose in court anyway. At least that's the feedback we got. We did it in South Korea, in Japan, I'm not sure. And Australia, we did too as well. So it's expensive, uh, but at least, yeah, that's, that's the, that was our strategy to, uh, to be protected. And, uh, and we'll have some more to do in the next uh, few years. And the key aspect as well, when I mentioned iPhone companies as maybe not competitors, but more players in the right sphere, I would say our main competitors remains uh, conventional OEM, such as Bombardier, Alstom, Airbus, Boeing. As soon as they see that, okay, the market is as in a traction and start to, to have a, a huge interest in, in that, uh, the risk is that, yeah, they start to copy uh, the IP of some of the key or small startup companies. And as a startup company, we may have difficulties to fight even from a legal standpoint against those big players. So we're paying attention to those. Oh, and um, one key element actually, which is above, I would say, the IP or being protected uh, by filing patterns is the know-how. I mean, today, if you look at the IP, uh, not anyone can copy that and make it work. Uh, you need the right people and skills uh, to make it work, which is, uh, yeah, which is, uh, at, at the end of the day, it comes down to your team and the people you have and, and the expertise you can develop uh, within your company. That's great. Well, and speaking of the know-how piece, um, so here we are, you know, uh, you guys, of course, overnight success building something like this. Um, You've been at this for a while now. Uh, you and I met, I think, initially maybe in 2017 when you came to Calgary. The big question would be, hey, Sebastian, if you could you know, get in the, the way, way back machine and go back 10 years in time, what's the advice you'd give yourself and, and by extension to our other entrepreneurs here for how to succeed in this? Mm, I don't think, uh, or maybe one advice I would give to myself, maybe to, um, uh, to, to start before 
um, I've tried many, I would say, industrial companies to kind of see if there is one which could fit my values, and that was not the case. But having said that, I would kind of do the same. Uh, one piece of advice which keep, keep, keeps me awake or motivated to continue is really, I'm using, uh, I'm referring to two quotes from two big players or big, big persons uh, uh, from, I would say, um, history. Uh, one quote is from uh, uh, Winston Churchill. And it said, uh, just act if it was uh, impossible to fail. So no matter what happened, just try to say, okay, how can I move forward? What can I do to kind of click and, 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 and execute the next steps? And, uh, and I think the, he said that during a time of war and said, okay, uh, UK could not afford to lose the war. And so, okay, we need to make it work or to, to fight no matter what. And the other one I like is from Nelson Mandela. And he said, okay, I never lose. Either I learn or I win. And uh, I like those two. And uh, if you keep kind of reminding that every day, helps to kind of uh, keep the, 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 the drive, I would say. That's awesome. Well, thank you very much, Sebastian. I know there are many more questions, but I know that my kids are hungry. <laughs> it's a guy has got to get paid eventually. Yeah, uh, we. <laughs> yeah, well, now so we got sushi. If you want to. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. Pizza, uh, yeah, I, I'll uh, I'll share that uh, Zach has a pizza sponsor for actually it's Jade Alberts has a pizza sponsor for his podcast. So I, I got to figure out how to get a pizza sponsor. Let me just put that out to the universe. We need a we need a pizza sponsor. Um, thank you very much. I'm sure there's a lot of interest. Hopefully this will get you some uh, renewed media attention on the state of the project. Yeah, as a conclusion, just to, to share maybe that we we're expecting uh, terms, but it's not we're expecting, we're already negotiating that uh, uh, from financial institutions to uh, to secure those initial phases. The government has been really supportive. So as of today, all the stars are aligned to make it work. And everybody wants that in, in the province. And I'm glad that we can do that in Alberta. And I, I'm, I, I want to make a point that I, I've learned over the last five years that, oh, you know what, in Canada, we love to be first to be second. And uh, I want to make, make sure that they're wrong. <laughs> we can be first and we'll be first, even before the Middle East or wherever, whatever country. Anyway. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. Well, let's let's race to be first. And, and I think, you know, bon courage, this is definitely an area that requires, uh, you know, a strong constitution. Uh, Winston Churchill and Nelson Mandela are both people who walk through long deserts in their lives, right? So uh, great. Hopefully uh, so I won't go through that too. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Merci beaucoup. For more podcasts, subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes or visit us at www.actia.ca.